If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, we're beginning. We're continuing, but we're beginning. So last week we, we got through 1 Samuel, and this week we, we transitioned right into 2 Samuel. As, as we said, this is originally one book, and so there is, there is a, a seamless transition between the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. So we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel this morning. And so I've titled this sermon, Life After Saul. Life After Saul. So if you remember, if you weren't here, last week Saul died on Mount Gilboa. So, so that was a, a, a process that was long in coming. And finally last week, Saul died. And 2 Samuel picks up right where 1 Samuel left off. And now that Saul is dead, we're faced with the question, what's going to happen next? We've seen throughout the, the second half of 1 Samuel this constant tension between Saul and David. David has constantly been on the run, and now that Saul is dead, we as readers, we're curious to know, will things get better for David? Will David rejoice, and will he ascend to the throne uncontested? When the first four chapters of 2 Samuel, which is what we're going to look at, and I know that's a lot, uh, but in the first four chapters, the main theme that, that's running through these chapters is, is piece by piece, all of the hindrances to David becoming king are going to be eliminated. And so we'll see in these chapters, even though Saul is dead, the house of Saul is still going to make a claim on the throne, and there's still going to be tension between the house of Saul and the house of David. And so we're going to see this tension continue, even though Saul is dead. But what we're going to see, through all that that takes place in chapter 4, David is going to be seen waiting on the Lord. David is going to be seen as patiently waiting for the Lord to bring about what the Lord had promised and so as we walk through the events of these chapters, it'd be really, really easy just to get lost in the details of, of all that goes on. So here at the outset, I, I want you to know that one of the main applications for us from these chapters is the necessity of patience, the necessity of, of waiting on the Lord. Because in the midst of all that goes on in these chapters, remember, David knows that he's going to be king. He's been promised that he's going to be king. And so in all the events that are going on, patience is an absolute necessity, especially, especially when things don't seem to be going the way that they're supposed to. And so for David, this patience is possible. David can wait on the Lord because David knows the Lord. And he knows the Lord who has made the promises, and he can entrust himself to this Lord. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Well, as we, as we begin, let me, let me pray for our time. Father, would you by your spirit this morning be our teacher? We confess that we're easily distracted and we can often be hard-hearted towards you and towards others. And so I pray, we pray this morning that you would patiently teach us through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so, so we break it down, the, the four chapters. So each chapter is a subject heading or an outline heading. So, so the outline um, that'll be up on your screen is, is just chapters one, two, three, and four. And so we'll see first, chapter 1, David responds to Saul's death. That's what happens in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we'll see David and a man named Ishbosheth, who is Saul's son. Um, then third, we'll see Abner and Joab. These are two military leaders of, of the house of Saul and the house of David. Then finally, we'll see no king in Israel. So, so let's begin uh, chapter 1. David responds to Saul's death. Now, I'm not going to read... Uh, our passages. So, so you're going to have to follow along. I'm going to keep telling you to look down and, and notice. So, so we'll begin in chapter 1. So chapter 1, if you remember last week, David returns. Last week he was, or two weeks ago, he was 
um, he was sent home from, from going to war with the Philistines. So chapter 1 here in 2 Samuel picks up, he's, he's gotten back to the town of Ziklag that he's been given by, by the king of, of the Philistines. Um, and, and so he goes back after striking down, the Philistine, uh, uh, striking down the Amalekites. And on the third day that he's there, he's returned. A man from Saul's camp comes to Ziklag. Now remember, we know what happened. So we know that Saul was killed in battle on Mount Gilboa. But at this point, David doesn't know anything. David has just come home, and he's at Ziklag. All he knows is that, that there's going to be a war between the Philistines and the Israelites. So, so David's there. The third day's there. A man comes. He shows up with, with his clothes torn, and there's dirt on his head. He's clearly a man who at least appears to be in distress. So he shows up, and he tells David what's happened. He says, I, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And he says, the Israelites fled in battle, and many of the Israelites are dead. So that's his report to David, and he says, including those who are dead is Saul and his son Jonathan. Okay, so, so he, he brings the message to David. So when David hears this, his immediate concern is, is how, how do you know about Saul and Jonathan? Tell me how you know this. So, so look there at verse 6 in his response. He says, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he, that is Saul, looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am, I am an Amalekite. And Saul said to me, stand, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. That's to you, David, I've brought them. And so as he recounts what happens, we immediately have a decision to make. Because last week in 1 Samuel 31, the, the events of Saul's death were recorded a bit differently, weren't they? If you remember, in, in, in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, Saul killed himself because the armor bearer was too afraid to do it. Do you remember that? But here, this man reports that, that he's the one who killed Saul, that Saul wasn't dead. This man reports, I just happened to be on Mount Gilboa and I saw Saul leaning on his spear. So he says, spear, not sword, that, that may be a contradiction. And then according to this man, he and Saul had an interchange that ended with Saul asking this Amalekite to kill him. And the decision that we have to make as, as readers is whether or not this man's telling the truth or not. And so so what, what's, what's the real account of what happened? Either, A, he did kill Saul, and it just wasn't included in first scene with 31. So some people say that's what happened. So in 31, it just didn't say. Just, just didn't include that, which that's possible. Or B, he didn't kill Saul, and he's just making it all up. Right, so, so is he lying or not? Now, one thing to point out, David hasn't heard anything about it. So when David receives the report, he has no choice but to believe him. Right? He, he, he doesn't have 1 Samuel 31 to say, well, wait a minute, that's not what I read. Right? So this is the first report that David gets. And so the whole issue of lying isn't pertinent to David, but it does concern us. So we say, well, what happened? So, so let me tell you what I think. I, I think this man is lying. I think he's coming as an imposter who's made up this whole thing. I, I think he's probably even messed up his hair and dirtied his shirt so that it looks like he's in distress. And here's why. Here, here's just a few reasons. First is, is the, the language of 1 Samuel 31 that says it was Saul's sword, not spear, that he fell on. That seems to be an inconsistency. But second, I think more convincingly, the whole point, if you remember in chapter 31, Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him. Why? Lest those Philistines have the opportunity to kill Israel's king. I don't want that to happen. And so here, right, the Amalekite is not a Philistine, but neither are friends of Israel. And so for Saul to say, hey, you're an Amalekite, and I know you're an Amalekite, but I still want you to come kill me, 
That, that's not, doesn't seem, to, doesn't seem likely that Saul would request an Amalekite to kill him. Another reason, why would this man happen upon Mount Goboah? I just happened to be there, right? That's not what you do when it's wartime or if a war has just immediately ended. I'm no war expert, but that just doesn't make sense to me. How convenient, right? This is why I think he would make it up. How convenient for this man to return the crown in the armlet of King Saul to David. You notice he says, I brought him here for you, my Lord. This is the, the crown in the armlet of the king, and I brought it here for you. I mean, it's obvious why this man would want to make up this story just so he could present David with these things. He wants to play a part in David's kingdom. And what better way than to, to get on his, his good side than by presenting him the crown and the armlet. And so I think this man is lying to David. Now, obviously, he got the crown and the armlet somehow, right? I can only speculate how that came about. But the main point to make here is that this man reports Saul's death to David, and he presents him with his royal symbols. And the whole reason is he's Hope, hoping to be received by David. And he, wants to be re- he wants to be welcomed by David. That's why he does this. And so notice verse 11, the first thing David does. He, 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 the first response has nothing to do with this man who's brought the news. Instead, the first thing he does, verse 11, David took hold of his clothes and tore them. That's not the Amalekites, that's his own. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And so David's first response is is mourning, mourning over the loss suffered by Israel. He mourns over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. And so in verses 19 through 27, there's there's this great lament, this, this popular, beautiful lament, how the mighty have fallen, he repeats. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And so David, this, this lament that, that, he, that he writes, that he pins and, and sings for Jonathan and for Saul, David's response tells us that, that this is who David was. He was not what this Amalekite thought he was, right? Because if David was this power-hungry king in waiting, he would take the th- crown, take the arm, and say, okay, great, good work. But that's not who David is, A power-hungry person wouldn't lament like David did. David mourned, and in his mourning, he honored. He respected Saul and Jonathan and all those who had been killed. I mean, the the reality was Israel's first king and all of his sons had been killed in battle. And they had been killed fighting Israel's enemies, which is an honorable thing to do. It was a sad day in the life of Israel. Sure, Saul hadn't been the best king. In fact, most of the time he'd been a pretty, pretty miserable king, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't worth mourning over. And so David honors Saul and Jonathan by lamenting their deaths. But, but mourning, this act of mourning, isn't David's only response to this news of Saul's death. He does eventually respond to the Amalekite. And so look there in verses 13 through 16. Verse 13, David said to the young man, that's the Amalekite, who told him, he says, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. Verse 14, David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. Then David called one of the young men and said to him, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so far from congratulating or honoring this messenger who had so eagerly told of the killing of the king, David responded with vengeance. David responded with vengeance. This man had reached out his hand against the Lord's anointed, and David, 
took it in his own hands to make him pay. I mean, in fact, this is exactly this idea of, of, of reaching out a hand against the Lord's anointed is exactly what had prevented David from taking Saul's life two times prior, isn't it? It's not, I'm not going to do that, is what David said when his friend, when his, his fellow companion says, look what the Lord's done. He says, forbid that I reach out my hand and strike the Lord's anointed. And that's exactly what this Amalekite had done. So surely the, the, this man thought that David would be glad to know that he had finalized David's path to the throne. They had finished off Saul. But to his shock, David would have no part of it. He didn't need the kingdom procured through human hands. Now, now the, this passage, it, it doesn't condone what David does. It reports it. So, so we, we, we had to be careful. But David does do this. And I think the reason he, he, he wouldn't have the kingdom procured through human hands because he'd rather be patient and trust the Lord as he had previous times. So that leads us to chapter 2, 2 Samuel 2. So, so after that, the, the events of 1, as we turn to chapter 2, right? So now, okay, now things may go smoothly for David. Having waited as long as he had, now Saul is gone. He's mourned Saul's death. He's mourned the loss of Israel's first king. It would be right to expect his coronation and beginning of his reign now. But that's not exactly what happened. So notice, notice chapter 2. So in verses 1 through 7, David inquires of the Lord. What ought he to do next? Do you see that there in chapter 2? He inquires of the Lord. What shall I do? Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? He's waiting on the Lord. Right? He doesn't say, okay, here's the plan, guys. He says, Lord, what, what am I going to do? And the Lord confirms that David is to go up to Hebron, which, which, which was the city of Judah. And, and there he would find lots of support. So David goes, as the Lord says, go up there, and, and he's crowned king over Judah. So, so David is crowned here. But we ought to recognize that David's support at this time, it, it's still limited. Right? It's like the friends and family sale. Right? Only the few are here in Judah that are part of this coronation. Okay, so, so this is by no means recognizing David as king over all of Israel, but, but there is this, this small town in Judah where he's recognized as the rightful crown, the rightful king, which is why in verses 4 through 7, right, he sends word to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, commending them for what, how they had treated Saul, because he's, he's trying to get support. So he says, you, you treated Saul well. He's, atten- he's attempting to win their support because, because it, Judah isn't enough, right, so he needs to, to spread, right, his, his population of supporters has to spread. And so while David is gaining support there in 1 through 7, the rest of the chapter describes uh, another potential hindrance to David's ascension. This is like a thorn in the flesh, if you will, which is, is a thorn from the house of Saul. So, so Saul was constantly opposing David. Well, now one of Saul's sons is going to oppose David. And so th- this is life after Saul. David doesn't ascend conflict-free. He doesn't receive a red carpet welcome in Jerusalem. Instead, immediately following Saul's death, David's faced with more conflict. And so we're introduced Israel gets another king. So in verse 8, we're introduced to a man named Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth, we find out, is, is one of Saul's sons. And so you remember Saul and all of his sons died in battle. Well, this one wasn't in battle, and it's probably for this exact reason. Okay, well, well if everyone dies, we have to have someone here. And so Ishbosheth is there. And so obviously, as, as the son of a deceased king, he is the likely candidate to succeed his father's throne. And so, so the military leader, Abner, a man named Abner that we've encountered earlier in, in, in 1 Samuel, who happens to be Saul's cousin, this means Abner, he, he says, okay, I'm going to make you king. And Abner, I mean, this is a self-serving act, because if, if you're king and not David, then, then I'm, I'm second in command. And so Abner says, okay, Ishbosheth, you're going to be king. 
And so he's made king over Israel. Abner gets support for him. And so what we have at the end of verse 11 is, is there's two men ruling over two portions of Israel. And so remember, Israel, there's no king. They said, give us king. They had one king. They have one king, one king. King dies, no kings, and now two kings. Right? So there's two men that are ruling, which, it should go without saying, but two kings over one people is not a recipe for success. Instead, it's a recipe for disaster. And that is the case here in chapter 2. It leads to civil war. Civil war, and that, that we get a glimpse of that in verses 12 through 17 in this battle of Gibeon. So in this battle, so you have these two sides, and there's two military leaders. There's Abner, who's the, the cousin of Saul, who's the military leader of Saul's men, and you have Joab, who's the leader of David's men. And, and they, they meet at this pool of Gibeon, and, and they decide, we're going to have a 12-on-12 battle. And so Abner picks 12 men, Joab picks 12 men, and they, they fight. And a short time later, right, you have 24 men dead. They all fell down together, verse 16 records. And so you have this 12 on 12 that, that's, that's an attempt to, to solve the problem, and they all die. They all kill one another, which then leads to, to a larger battle. Verse 17, a, a very fierce battle that continues between the house of David and the house of Saul. And the result of that, of that battling, of that larger conflict, was that Abner and the men of Israel, which are Saul's men, were beaten before the servants of David. So, so this war, and, and, and remember, this isn't war between Israel and their enemies. This is war between two groups of Israelites. But it makes clear that David and his men are, are victorious, and they're, they, they defeat Saul and his men. And so after that battle, the, the rest of the chapter continues to highlight the conflict, but, but now it focuses on two individual men, a man named Abner, who's the leader of Saul's men, and then one of, one of David's main men, a man named Asahel. And so Abner, the leader of Saul's men, is, is pursued. He's literally chased by Asahel, who, whose nickname is, is Fleet Feet. And so he's the fast one, so he's running after Abner. And Asahel also happens to be one of David's nephews. But, but so he is chasing Abner because Abner's the one who, who made Ishbosheth king. So, so if he can eliminate Abner, right, then David's path to the throne is clear. And so he's, he's pursuing Abner. And it's a fascinating scene, and, and you should read through it there in chapter 2. But at the end of the day, although Abner tries to, to prevent Asahel from pursuing him and says, stop doing it, go to the right or left, or, or okay, at least get a weapon, Don't, this is not going to end well for you. He tries to prevent him. Asahel will not hear it, and he continues pursuing him. And Abner uses his sword and strikes him and kills him. And so, so the, the fast warrior of David's army is killed by, by a sword, by a blunt end of the sword, in fact. And so he's dead, and his two brothers, Joab and Abishai, they say, we got, we're going to go get Abner. And so they pursue him briefly, but then they decide to stop fighting because they, they come to the realization, we're brother after brother, why are we doing this? And so both sides agree to end, and they retreat, they regroup. But the narrator wants us to know that as a result of all that's gone on, all this conflict, 19 of David's men were killed, and 360 of Saul's men were killed. And remember, 12 of those 19 were killed in that battle at Gibeon. And so it's clearly not an even fight. David and his men are rising, and Saul is not. And in fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, there's a summary of this time. And so verse 1 of chapter 3 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. 
So even though Saul is gone, conflict continues between Saul's family and David's family. And over who's going to control this nation. But, but the trajectory of both men continues even after Saul's dead. David continues to be stronger and stronger. And Saul, his house continues to get weaker and weaker. And David is content to wait on the Lord. And so he's waiting. Then leads us to chapter 3. Chapter 3 highlights a, the, the, a conflict, a continued conflict, that surfaces between Saul and David's house. And so you're going to have Abner and Joab, or, or there's going to be conflict. But, but then it goes within Saul's house. So it starts David and Saul, but then it goes, there's even conflict within Saul's house. And so chapter 3, after, after the first five verses, highlight the growth of David's family there. As David continues to have sons, all his sons are listed, which is important for someone who's going to be king. Right? This, is, this is establishing the line of, of the throne when David takes the throne. But in verse 6, we learn while there's war between Saul's house and David's house, Abner, this man Abner, is making himself strong in the house of Saul, it says. And so then we, we focus on Abner. So Abner, verse 6 through 11, he gets angry at Ishbosheth. So Ishbosheth accuses Abner of taking one of his father's concubines. So, so Saul's died, and, and Ishbosheth says, You took one of my father's concubines. And so he charges Abner with that, and Abner gets furious. Now we don't know if this charge is true or not. Right? We just don't know. All we know is that Abner gets furious and he abandons Ishbosheth and he says, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going to the other team. Right? I'm done playing with you. Right? That's what our kids say when they're angry. I'm not, I'm not playing with you anymore, I'm going to go play over with the neighbor. So that's what he does. So he, he leaves, he abandons Abner, or he abandons Ishbosheth and goes to David. Now, I, I think the charge is probably true because, for one, right, what we know about Abner, right, this isn't a picture of selflessness. Right? He comes across as, as someone who looks continually out for number one, which is what, probably why he probably would take this, this late, this concubine, as a statement, right? This is what the king does, and this is what I'm doing. So, so I think this is probably very likely because he wants to be king. But I also think it's probably true that Abner did this because, if you read, he doesn't deny the charge. Instead, his defense sounds, in my mind at least, more like a justification. He says, I've been nothing but faithful to Saul's house, and I've never thought about giving you over in the hand of David. Yet you come and you charge me with this? This small thing you're charging me with? I've been nothing but faithful. Why would you charge me with this? And now he could certainly be claiming his innocence, saying, why are you charging me with this? I didn't do it. But he could also be justifying, saying, you should be worried about other things. Right? So, so I, think, I think it's probably true. But either way, Abner is furious that he would be accused of this, and then he defects to David. And as he goes, notice verse 9, what he says. As he's leaving, going to the other side, he says, God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David, notice, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And so as Abner leaves, Ishbosheth, he doesn't say another word. He's afraid of Abner. But as Abner goes, think about what he's saying. Right? He goes away thinking, I'm going to accomplish, I'm going to help God accomplish what God promised. And do you, do you notice in that, in that wording, that's what he's saying, I'm going to go. As if me switching sides is going to change the outcome of the situation. Now God has Abner on his side. Right? Good for God because now he's got a winner. Right? He can accomplish what he promised now and I'm going to go help him do that. And so, so we can be sure Abner is going to the correct side. Right? That, that is the side that he should be on. But he clearly has no regard for God or for his promises. And he's going to get power, right? Okay, Ishbosheth is clearly not going to be king. David is, I'm going to go over there so I can, I can be on the right team. 
Right? This is, again, his, his self-service in action. And so he sees himself as a missing piece to secure David's rise. And so Abner goes to David, and he makes, makes an agreement, a covenant with David, and David says, sure, the only thing they have to do is you have to, you have to give Michael back to me. Now, Michael was Saul's daughter, you remember, that was, that was taken from David. And so he says, I, I want my wife back. And so Abner has no problem getting Michael, Saul's daughter, back, and, and, she, and so Abner takes her from her husband and sends her to David. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a sad scene in verse 16, especially if you're, if you're a romantic, but, but you have this, this image of Michael being taken away, and her husband is going out after her weeping. Don't take my wife. Don't take my wife. It's, it's a sad scene, but we have to remember, Saul took her because he used her as a bargaining chip in the first place. And so, so this isn't David's fault. This is Saul's action coming back and affecting, affecting his son, or affecting this, this, this husband of of Michael. Well, so Abner has this new relationship with David, this agreement. He goes to the elders of Israel and begins getting people on David's side. So like he said, he's, he's solidifying David's report, support from all of Israel. And so, so there's this repeated phrase where, where David and Abner are, are, are talking and making agreements, and David sends Abner away in peace. In peace. Okay, you, you can go in peace. We're on, we're on good terms. And so he goes out to, to get support for David. Well, just then, and just as he sends Abner away, Joab gets back to Hebron. So he's been, he's been out on a raid, and he gets back. Now, if you remember Joab, right, his brother is the one, Asahel, who was killed by Abner. So he gets back. He hears the news that, wait a minute, Abner just left, and he was talking with David, and David sent him in peace. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's only one reason that, that Abner is here, and that's to deceive David. And so Joab, thinking he's protecting David, sends his messengers after the recently departed Abner. He says, come on back. Right? The king wants you here. Or come back. You, you forgot something. And so when Abner returns, Joab meets him and he kills him. And he kills him. Not primarily because of his loyalty to David, but because of his pent-up anger towards Abner for killing his brother. Right? This is revenge. He killed my brother and he's going to pay. It's not protecting David primarily. And as we might expect, when David hears about what happens, and instead of being relieved that Saul's former military commander has been killed, David declares his innocence. Because David had no, this wasn't David's plan. He wanted everybody to know that. And so he curses Joab, who has done this. And he mourns, again, he mourns the death of Abner. And all the people mourn after David's example. They understood that it was not David's idea or plan to put Abner to death, as they see him responding in this way. And verse 36 says that everything that David did pleased the people. And so David's support is, is rising and rising as David is patiently waiting on the Lord. He, he's not manipulating it and trying to, to act out in ways to bring about what he knows is going to happen. He's waiting on the Lord. He's unlike any other king that, he's unlike any king that the other nations had ever been ruled by. And he, he's just content to wait and trust the Lord. He's certainly unlike Saul. He was a king who sought to rule justly. Right? I, I'm not behind all of this killing, all of this vengeance. He trusted the Lord. And so now that Abner's dead, that the only thing left leading the charge of Saul's house was Ishbosheth. Remember the, the one king, the son? Well, that's what chapter 4 focuses on. So there in, verse, there in chapter 4, we're not going to spend too much time in chapter 4, but chapter 4 simply records the fate of Ishbosheth. The final piece of opposition is going to be removed. So when he gets news that, that Abner is dead, 
Ishbosheth is distraught and is courageless. And so when, they, when, when that happens, two of Saul's military captains, two of these military men, they, they apparently see the writing on the wall and they decide to take action against Ishbosheth. And so they sneak, go into the house while he's napping. So the king, remember, he's the king, he's napping, and these two captains sneak into his room while he's taking a nap and they kill him. And they cut off his head. And they take his head and they travel all night. They go all night to David at Hebron. And obviously they don't know David, right? So they take this, this trophy of theirs. And when they get to David, they present this head to him. And they assume, look, no more opposition to your throne. Saul's son is dead. Now he can be king. And that, that's, that's obviously their thinking. They want to be thanked and welcomed and praised by David. But David answers, look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Then 2 Samuel 4, 9, here's what David says. As the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward that I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed napping, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, remember the king, and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And so these two captains, they'd not avenged David as they thought. Right? The Lord is the one who is David's deliverer. Did you see? The Lord who's redeemed me out of every adversity. I didn't need you to do this. The Lord is the one who delivers me. And so David would not welcome them, but instead gave them justice for their evil. He gave Ishbosheth the proper burial. So, so he's all about justice here. All these men had done, according to David, was to kill a righteous man while he was sleeping. And so as chapter 4 concludes, all of the rightful heirs to Saul's throne have been eliminated. No longer does there seem to be anyone to challenge David. The, the path seems set. Though there is, if you look there in verse 4, of chapter 4, there's, there's one small note, because there's one other member of Saul's family mentioned. So it's there in verse 4. It's a man named Mephibosheth. It's so a Jonathan's son. So this isn't Saul's son, but it's Jonathan's son named Mephibosheth, who's been taken away. So, so his, his caretaker, when she hears that Saul and Jonathan are dead, she with haste goes, because she knows people are going to be coming after Mephibosheth. So she makes, makes haste to escape with him, and, and in the hurry to leave, he fell, and he became lame. And so the whole point of this, and this will come up several other times in, in the book of 2 Samuel, but the point of, of mentioning that he was lame was, was another way of saying that he was no longer a candidate to be king. And if he's lame, he's worthless in that culture. And so they make the note, and it'll be picked up again in a couple weeks, but the point is that there's no, there's no more potential king in the, in the family tree of Saul. And so as he concludes 2 Samuel 4, the path to David's coronation is clear. And so, so it's ready. He's ready to be king. The Lord, through these first four chapters, has eliminated all the obstacles. And so next week, when we pick up the story, right, we'll, we'll see David will be crowned king and will defeat the Philistines. But that'll be next week. So as we close today, let me, let me, let me end with just three points of application from, from these chapters. And so these are just three that I, that I see from this from this these chapters. First is the temptation of power. The temptation or the pull of, of having power or position. Or another way of putting it is the temptation to use others to get what you want. And I think that's at work here, but, but it's just this, this pull that we see. And so we see it in, in the Amalekite messenger. 
Right? He thought that he could get a step ahead. He could climb a rung on the ladder. And so he wanted to get David on his good side. So he says, I'm going to take news of the death of Saul. So he, he wants power. And so, as I argued, he makes up this lie. And so we saw in Abner two times, both in, in promoting Ishbosheth as king, saying, okay, you're going to be king. Right? He, he wants Ishbosheth to be king so he can be second in command, but then also in defecting to David's side. He wanted to be the military leader of the king, whether it was Ishbosheth or David. He didn't care as long as he was second in power. And so he, he wants to be in power. This is what we saw in the two captains here in chapter 4 of Saul's army who killed Ishbosheth. They saw the writing on the wall. They say, okay, this guy's not coming to anything. We're going to kill him. He, he's worthless anyways, and we're going to take his head to David so that we can be welcomed in David's family. And so all this combined, in these chapters, we see the great links that people go to in order to try and secure power, to, to have authority. I mean, they'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll kill. And so as we see this, I, I simply want to ask, I want us to pause and ask ourselves, how... Am I tempted similarly? What are some temptations that I experienced to, to have this, right? This, this is a natural desire to be respected and have power and authority. And so we should just stop and ask ourselves, how am I tempted? Are there, are there circumstances or situations where I'm tempted to lie, cheat, sin in order to get ahead? Maybe it's not even actions. Are, are, how are my desires or my thoughts affected by this temptation? Right? It's there, whether you acknowledge it or not. It's there. It is the human temptation. And so what we see here is this temptation for fallen people to exploit others to get power and authority. We simply have to recognize we're not immune to that temptation. So just simply stopping and recognizing that is helpful for us from this. But also, secondly, regarding this temptation, we're going to pause and ask ourselves, well, what's the Christian perspective on power and authority? Does God say, okay, if you're a Christian, you can't, can't have authority, you can't have power? No, that's not. That's not the Christian perspective. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's a Christian perspective on power and authority? And as we ask that question, what we see is that Christian power is, is, is quite different than what we see in these chapters. Right? These men are pursuing position and power and prestige in a worldly way. Right? This is the way of the dragon, the way of Satan himself. This is the world system. You scratch and you claw and you climb and you don't care who gets hurt in the process. As long as you're at the top, that's all that matters. It's, it's your own good that prompts it. it. At the heart, it's selfishness, and that's the way the world works, but that's not the way of Christ, the way of the Lamb. So the Christian perspective is that position, that power, that authority is to be used and pursued selflessly. Right? That's power, that's authority. This is the way of the Lamb. This is the example set by Christ. Right? Who else but Christ sets this example? Though, in form of God, equal with God, didn't consider Equality with God, a thing to be taken advantage of, right? If anyone had power and authority they could just exercise from distance, it was Jesus. He had all power and all authority, but yet he gave that up, right? Emptied himself so that he could take on the form of a human. Humbled himself, became a servant, took on flesh, and was crucified. And so as Christians, we follow that paradigm of power, right? It's, it's exercised in humility, with patience, gently, because that's the way that our Lord did it. Well, second application from this text. Just briefly, I think we see the, the havoc of human vengeance. I mean, there's just havoc left as, as, these, as these, these parties are, are killing and, and vindicating one another. 
In the wake of these four chapters, we see a lot of bloodshed and death, and a good portion of it is, is a result of personal vengeance. In connection with the last point, all this personal vengeance seems to be selfish at its core. People want others to pay. And so I'm going to make him pay for killing my brother. And that, that's, that's what they think. When someone wrongs you, you want to make them pay. That's natural. I'm going to make them pay. Oh, I'm never going to forget this. You want to make them pay. Right? That, that's what we see at work here. And, and as we see, when this, when this works itself out, there's havoc and chaos, and there's danger in human vengeance. Right? When you seek to avenge yourself, it always only leaves hurt and wreckage in its wake. You hear that? When you seek to avenge yourself, it always only leaves hurt and wreckage in its wake. And we see that here. Vengeance is not yours to repay. You will be wronged. Hear that? You will be wronged. You will be hurt. And you will want to make others pay. But at the end of the day, it's not your job to make anyone pay. That's not your job. If you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a defender. And it is not you. You will be vindicated. Believer, hear that. In the midst of all the wrongs that have been committed against you, you will be vindicated. It may not be now. It may not even be in this lifetime. But you will be vindicated. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And because that is true, Christian, it's not your job to repay evil for evil. Right? So, so resist the temptation to, to, to vindicate yourself. But then lastly, and I think the, the main point of application is, is we see the application of waiting patiently on the Lord. We see that illustrated, waiting patiently on the Lord. And we see it in David's life throughout, throughout these events in the four chapters. His past, path to the throne is anything but what, what's expected. I think all the way back to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, when he's anointed, right? The very next chapter comes David and Goliath. And since then, it's been nothing but what he's expected. David has been through a lot, but through it all, he has been waiting on the Lord. And I think we can learn from his example. And so I think we, we can see, so if you're here and you're a Christian, you can learn from David to wait on the Lord as an individual. So individually, you are called to wait on the Lord. And so if you're a Christian, right, that's, that's the call for you, especially when things aren't going the way you think they ought. When nothing in your life seems to be going according to plan, when, when your life is difficult, when you're tempted to make things happen because they're not happening, when, when, that's, when that's pressing in on you, these are the times when you're called to wait on the Lord, to trust Him. Right? Because when you're not waiting and you're doing, right, it's because you're not trusting him. Christian, the Lord doesn't sleep. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He hasn't forgotten you. He's with you. He's working all things according to his will. And so if you're a Christian, the Lord is with you. He's on your side and he's all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present with you. And so let me tell you, you'll never regret waiting patiently on him. Maybe that's you this morning, right? Wait on the Lord. Patiently wait on the Lord. He is worth waiting for. But then, so individually, I think there's an application, but I think corporately, there's an application. The same could be made. Application can apply to us as a church. I mean, we as God's people have always been called to wait patiently on the Lord. I mean, I think about the book of Acts. When Jesus is, is buried, he's resurrected, he spends some time, and then he ascends into heaven. After he goes into heaven, he tells them, go in Jerusalem and what? Wait. Go wait. And they're afraid, they're trembling, they're just waiting. But then what happens? The Spirit comes. 
right? As he promised. So, so their waiting wasn't in vain. They wait, and at just the right time, the Lord answers. And they get the Holy Spirit, and the book of Acts records the spread of the Spirit among all the nations. And they wait until it's absolutely clear that God is on the move. In that case, it's, it's flaming tongues of fire, right? Okay, this is something that, that's not normal. It's clear this is what we're waiting for. And so when they see that, that's when their waiting is over. That's when they move into action. And I, I, simply for us, I want to ask, as a church, right, is God moving? Not, not are there tongues of fire outside of our building, but, but are there areas in our church where God's moving? Because if there's clear evidence of God's moving, then, then we should move with Him. And so, so we can't miss that. If God's moving, we better be moving with Him. But... If God's not moving, and this, this question is for me as much as anyone, if, if God's not clearly moving, why are we in a hurry? Why are we in a hurry? Right? This is the Lord's church. He's going to build it. Hopefully, it'll be here a long time after all, any of us. Right? God doesn't need us to make it happen, right? So we can wait. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. Right? Lamentations 3.25 to the soul who seeks him. And so, as a church, that's my prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Let's patiently wait until it's clear that he's moving. And then finally, I think this applies, patience on the Lord applies on, on a cosmic or a universal level. So in these chapters, and, and as we'll see throughout 2 Samuel, David is celebrated as, as this ideal king. He's way better than Saul, but, but he's the, the ideal king that Israel needed. And, and as the ideal king, he willingly waits and submits to God's timing and direction. And so David is, is going to continually refuse, for the most part, to take things into his own hand. He's a, he's a type of the good king, but David isn't the good king. David's not the good thing. Everything that was good and ideal about King David pales in comparison to the one who would come after David. Because David is a type of the greater David. David is the true king who's a type of the even truer king. The one true king who was and is Christ, our Lord. And he that is Christ, the one true king, right now, believer, is ruling and reigning on, on, reigning on high from the Father's right hand. Right? right now, ruling and reigning, the Lord, the King of kings, Lord of lords. And he is waiting to bring about the consummation of all things. Right? He's waiting. So, so as we see this world going out of hand, we may say, maybe chaos, and we think, well, this is out of control. It's not. The Lord is ruling and reigning, and he's waiting for the day when he's going to return, and he will consummate all things, and, and that will be the end, which will also be the beginning. But when, when the Lord comes again, all things will be made right. You hear that? We will be ruled perfectly by the perfect king. And believer, that time's coming. It's coming. We can be sure of it. But until he comes, here's the point. Until he comes, do you know what we do? We wait. Wait patiently. And we trust him. Let's pray as we close.